Good morning, Zarephath Church. It's an honor to be with you again this morning. I just want to start by saying, first of all, it was great to hear from Jim Acapinti last week and from the leadership here at the church, their heart and how they've been waiting on the Lord and needing patience and so on, and especially that God is sending Pastor Scott Jones here as your interim. He'll be speaking next Sunday, and so make sure you come and, and support him in that. Uh, it's very important that the church have a shepherd, an under-shepherd, especially now. It's as if the world is crumbling around us and in desperate need of a word from God. This shooting in Wisconsin is like a bookend to what happened to George Floyd in May. And now Jacob Blake is shot in front of his children and all that's involved in that and the feelings that that is stirring up. And I, and I know I can imagine wounds are being opened again in the hearts of many of our uh, brothers and sisters in our congregation that are, are black and brown and others who have been impacted by uh, racism. It's, it, it's just really important for us to understand that in the midst of all of this, what the world really needs more than anything is the voice of God and the presence of God and the word of the gospel. And that is embodied by a healthy, diverse church. And we need to pray that Zarephath stays cohesive and healthy and diverse and loving as a witness to the community at this time. And we just praise God that Pastor Scott will be here and then continue to pray for after Pastor Scott that the Lord sends his person to be your next under shepherd. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you now and just present ourselves, the people listening and me as I bring this word. We present ourselves to you and, and pray that you will take out of what you've put on my heart, these couple of pieces of bread and these few fish, and you would take them in your hands. You would lift them and bless them and break them and distribute them and feed everybody and do a miracle this morning, Lord. Do a miracle in people's hearts. Show us ourselves in, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Reveal the grace and mercy and love of our Savior, Jesus Christ, through these words. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you heard, I just found out today that Amazon is coming out with its version of a, of a watch or, or like a Fitbit type of thing. It's going to measure heart rate and blood pressure and how many steps you've walked. But interestingly, it's going to add the additional monitoring of your emotions. It will tell you when you're sad or when you're happy or when your tone of voice needs to change. Isn't that amazing? I mean, who knows what's next? Well, I want to tell you about what you might hear about being next, something that's been around actually for quite a while in the experimental phase, going back to the 1980s. Dr. Michael Persinger of Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario, began experimenting with magnetic impulses, wavelengths of electricity that, that he would send into the frontal lobes of people's brains and they would evoke a mystical religious type experience people who experience these magnetic electronic signals going into the frontal lobes of their brains would say that they felt the presence of God 
And so Dr. Persinger decided to make a helmet. In this helmet were electrodes that when you place the helmet on a person's head and they could, they'd have a remote in their hand, they could push a button and the electrodes inside the helmet would emit these magnetic fields into the brain and people would have religious experiences. In fact, 900 people donned these helmets. 80% of them said things like they felt very fulfilled. They felt the presence of God. They, they, they couldn't wait to do it again. This helmet became known as the God helmet. Can you imagine the God helmet? Can you imagine going into Walmart and meeting the greeter in the front and saying, excuse me, but can you tell me where your God helmets are? And they would say, oh, aisle six, right next to the clap-on lights. Maybe designers will come up with unique designs for the God helmet. Can you just imagine you would have your own religious experiences, your own times with God at your, at your own disposal. It's under your control. Put on your helmet whenever you want. Take off your helmet whenever you want. Can, can you just imagine the, the return policy? If you're not completely satisfied with your encounters with God, you can return your God helmet within 30 days for a full refund. I'm being a little sarcastic, but there really is something out there called a God helmet. You could look it up on the internet. Imagine people in control of their experiences with God. This isn't anything new at all. In fact, it's been going on for a really long time, back into biblical days. We're going to read about people this morning wearing their God helmets, and I have to say to you, I've become aware in my life of times that I've had my own God helmet on when I felt that sense of control over my experience with God. Do you know what that does? It evokes pride. And pride is at the core of every sin. And every sin is something to be avoided. Look at Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way to, by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers." Now, Paul and Barnabas had just come back from this amazing first missionary journey. They were out there in southern Asia and, and on the island of Cyprus. They saw miracles. They saw God do astonishing things. In fact, they also experienced tremendous opposition. They were stoned within an inch of their lives. They were dragged outside a city and stoned so bad that people left them because they thought they were dead. And then Paul and Barnabas got right up and went back in the city and kept preaching the gospel. They saw Gentiles coming into the kingdom in droves. Now, since I was here last, amazing things have happened since chapter 12 of the book of Acts. In 13 and 14, we see a church established in the city of Antioch. And in Antioch, that church was comprised of both Gentiles and Jews. Remember Peter's pivot in, in Acts chapter 10? 
And then in chapter 11, he sees the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the household of Cornelius, uh, a story related to you by Mark Avery a few weeks ago. Well, now Gentiles are beginning to respond in great numbers. And Paul and Barnabas return from their missionary journey. They go to Antioch. They tell the church about what's been going on. And the church is so excited. And then the air gets sucked out of the room. These men come from Jerusalem with their God helmets on. Excuse me, pardon me, that's all well and good. But unless all of you Gentile men have this very awkward surgical procedure done on you, you cannot be saved. Talk about ruining the moment. Back when I was a brand new Christian, I was in a church in Flushing, Queens, Free Gospel Church, and I was warned about this particular man in church that I should stay away from him. His name was Brother Wanklin. In fact, later on, as I matured in Christ, I became part of a group of mature Christians called the Brother Wanklin Group. And our, our job was to monitor Brother Wanklin because he, here's what would happen. Brother Wanklin would not enter into worship during the worship time. He was very uninterested in it. He would sit in the back. He would barely listen to the sermon. Now, he looked the part. He had beautiful suits. He had a shock of white hair. He's an older gentleman. But Brother Wanklin's interest in the service became very keen at the moment when the pastor concluded his message and he asked with heads bowed and eyes closed if there were any who wanted to commit their lives to Christ. And hands would go up and people would make their way forward in the service to receive the Lord and up would pop Brother Wanklin and he would head for them. And then those of us who were on Brother Wanklin watch, our job was to intercept him. Sometimes he'd slip through. He'd go up to the individual at the altar. He would help them to pray. He would help them to receive the Lord. And then he would say, young man, your hair is too long. You better see a barber before you step back into this church. Or he'd say, young lady, that dress you're wearing is inappropriate for the house of God. Don't come here again until you're fully covered. Or, sir, that pack of cigarettes I see in your pocket, you smoke another cigarette, you're going straight to hell. He'd say things like that. And these people who had been touched by the love of God, the grace of God, the, the message that, that Christ bore their sins and they could be forgiven, these people who were just melted by God's love, once they had an encounter with Brother Wanklin, they would head out the door and never come back again. Can you just imagine that God invests this message in his son, this message of salvation, that his son would carry out this message physically by dying on a cross for the sins of the world, paying for it with his very own life, rising from the dead, ascending to heaven, and God takes that message and invests it in human beings to go out there and tell others about it. It's quite an entrustment God has made in us to share the gospel. And then there would be people who would say, oh yeah, that's a good message, but you need to add this other human thing to that message, otherwise it doesn't count. These individuals told the people in Antioch, you're not even saved unless you're circumcised. This greatly disturbed the church. In fact, later we would find out that some of these men 
went to Galatia, one of the cities Paul had visited and founded a church there. And they had infected that church with their message at such a point that the church completely adopted their teaching. And Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians to them later. And here's one of the things he wrote in that letter about these people. These are pretty harsh words. Galatians 5, verse 12. I wish that those that unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Wow. Pretty graphic. Oh, that's what you guys are focused on? Well, do it to yourself. It's what the Word of God says. Wow. Why is it so hard? Why is it so pointed? Because the gospel is at stake. That if you believe that the message of salvation in Jesus Christ is not enough, that that doesn't satisfy alone. You have to do these other things. You have to jump through these other hoops. Then you are denying the very death of Jesus on the cross. So the church is so unsettled in Antioch, they decide to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem and find out from the headquarters, from the people in in Jerusalem, well, what do we do about this message? Things only get worse. Look at verses 4 and 5. And so they went on their way, and when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. It got worse not only circumcision, but now you also have to keep the whole law of Moses. When Paul and Barnabas arrived in Jerusalem, they encountered men with the top of the line God helmets. I mean, the latest, greatest, top, you know, the, the best God helmet you can imagine. They had it on. And they were saying, no, that's not enough. Circumcision is not even enough. They have to do that and keep the whole law. You see, the message of the gospel is one of complete surrender. It is one of humility. It is one that says Jesus didn't cling to his rights and privileges as the Son of God, but completely emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant and died the death of a cross. And we who come to him take the form of bondservants and empty and surrender ourselves The gospel's about humility and surrender. And humility and surrender have a limit. There's a floor. You can only surrender everything and that's it. You can't surrender any more than that. But the opposite side of that, pride and control, pride and control don't have a floor. Pride and control are bottomless pits that know no satisfaction to their voracious appetite. When they get control, they want more control and more control and more control. And that's what happens to people with God helmets on. They want control, control of others and even control of God. They might say, oh, God says, but really it's them speaking. Theology becomes meology. You see, this was Jesus greatest opposition as well. Do you know that Jesus teaching against God-helmeted people was the greatest amount of teaching he had? He confronted these people more than he talked about heaven, more than he talked about hell, more than he talked about even his second coming. 
entire chapters of the gospel are composed of his confrontations with the people with the God helmets on. Matthew 23, the entire chapter. Mark chapter 2, many other examples. Let me just read to you a few of the encounters. They came to him upset because on the Sabbath, Jesus' disciples were rubbing grains of wheat and, and eating it in the, in, 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 in the, from their hands. And Jesus said to them in Matthew 12, 7, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. Jesus said, which of you that has a sheep that falls into a pit will not go get it on the Sabbath? Matthew 12, 12, of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for a man and not man for the Sabbath. Really, basically what Jesus is saying is that you're losing sight of people. People are what matters, not rules and regulations. Rules are important, but, but they're God's ways of, of getting people in alignment with him so that God can reach the people and have relationship with people. But the rules of the people with the God helmets on, those rules keep people away from God. Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, 24, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. He told them that they would travel here and there, near and far to get one convert and then keep them away from God. I want to tell you about a church I preached at in Elizabeth, New Jersey once. I would have to say it was the greatest church I've ever preached at. It's probably the greatest church in New Jersey. No disrespect to Zarephath. Probably the greatest church in America. Now this church was in a loading dock. It didn't have a building. Their front door was a huge garage. Their congregation were mostly homeless and mentally ill people, drug addicts and alcoholics who lived on the street. On Friday nights, they knew that they could get a warm meal and they would come for a warm meal. It wasn't required of them, but they were invited after their meal to stay for a service. And they would, almost always all of them would. There were no pews. There were boxes they sat on and some folding chairs. The lighting were, were light bulbs that swung from wires. It was, it, it, there was really nothing impressive about the place at all except for the people. These people were hungry. They weren't just hungry for that meal they got first. They were hungry for God. Now, there was a requirement at this church. There were some rules. If they had a choir, and if you were going to sing in the choir, you couldn't come to choir practice or service time if you were high or drunk. When I was preaching, an ambulance had to be called because someone had a seizure due to the drugs they were on in the congregation. And you would say, Pastor, that's, that's like the greatest church in New Jersey. You think that's the greatest church in America? Absolutely. You know why? These were people who understood, but by the grace of God, there go I. They understood God's mercy. They understood God's love. You know why else it was a great church? There were no people in that entire congregation that wore God helmets. You know why? 
People with God helmets couldn't stand the place. If they showed up and saw these people dressed that way and acting that way, and the, they'd have to get out of there. You see, physicians heal the sick. Jesus said, I came for the sick. I came to call the sick, not the righteous. You know, we have to be very careful about wearing God helmets because sometimes you don't even know you have it on. My very first ministry position was in this tiny country church, literally in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York. It was 12 miles outside of New Paltz. Now, if you opened the front door to this church and looked around, you saw one building, farms, fields, and one building. And we, the pastor and I, I was the youth pastor, the assistant pastor, we would go into New Paltz on Wednesdays. It was 12 miles away because that's where you did your shopping. That's where you did your laundry. We didn't have a washer or dryer. That's, that's where you, you, you did your weekly tasks in New Paltz. And we drove into New Paltz and there was a man in there I had seen before without the pastor. And there he was this day when I was with the pastor. Now this man was a sight. He was older. He had white hair that went all the way down his back. He wore a black leather vest over a black shirt, black leather pants, motorcycle boots that came up high, silver chains, silver bangles on each of his wrists that were two inches wide. He had large rings on his hand, beads around his neck, and he had a pronounced limp. And when he walked, he went like this and the beads would sway and his hair would sway. And he always was surrounded with college students. New Paltz has a SUNY school in it, State University of New York school in it. And these students would always hang around this guy. And I had him pegged. In my mind, I had him pegged. Oh, here is a man clearly having a midlife crisis. He's dressing like maybe he did in the 60s. And, and he wants to believe he's young, so he hangs around with young people. This is all my God helmet thinking. And I'm with the pastor this one day, and there he was. And I said, oh, have you ever seen that guy? And he laughed. He said, oh, yeah, I, I've seen him. And then I said, wouldn't it be funny if he ever came to our church in a very arrogant way? Like, what would the people think? Wow, he'd really stick out. Remember, this was a Wednesday. We drove back to church. We had midweek service on Wednesday. We had a prayer meeting. I'm praying before the service in the front of the church. And I'm saying these words to God out loud so everybody could hear, Lord, Please bring revival to our church. Lord, bring people in. Bring them in from everywhere, Lord. All kinds of people, Lord. Bring them in. I meant it. I was sincere. A lot of times when you have your God helmet on, you don't even know it's there. Got up, sat in my pew. Wednesday nights, we had testimonies. People would stand up and say what God is doing in their lives. The pastor called for testimonies, and I heard a, vo a voice from the back of the congregation I didn't recognize. I turned around and it was the man. <laughs> 12 miles outside of Newport. I have no idea how we got there. It was the man testifying about the goodness of God, about salvation, about how grateful he is to Jesus that he saved his soul and, and the wonderful ministry the Lord had given him in New Paltz to college students to share the gospel with them. Because of his appearance, they were drawn to him. I was frozen to my pew. I was frozen with conviction. I couldn't get to the altar quick enough and cry and tell God how sorry I was 
and take off my God helmet. Now in the midst of all of this comes a voice. This next portion of scripture I'm going to read to you is one not often referred to, but I will say it is a watershed moment in the history of the church. Look at verses 6 to 11. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Peter pivots. Remember that? He made his pivot. He took off his helmet. He saw the vision of the animals in the tent and God saying, arise, kill, and eat. Oh, no, never. I've never eaten such things. And God says, what I have cleansed, no longer call unclean. And he took off his helmet and he went to the house of Cornelius and he saw Gentiles filled with the Holy Spirit the essence of God. God himself filled uncircumcised people who didn't keep the law. God was in them. The Holy Spirit was in them. If the Holy Spirit was in these Gentiles, who are we to say that it's not good enough for them to just believe the gospel? They have to do these other things. This was a watershed moment. Everything changed from this moment on. Peter's testimony impacted the whole scene dramatically. You'll see this in a moment. But here, listen to what Jesus said to the God-helmet people about the two things they were missing and why they were so wrong. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine: You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. They could rattle off Scripture. They could quote Scripture, but they didn't know Scripture. They didn't understand it, and they didn't know the power of God. You see, the power of God and the Word of God trump all meology, not theology, meology everywhere. You see, there is a law we follow, but it's the law of the Spirit. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit, the law of the spirit of life sets you free from the law of death. Jeremiah 31, 33, the prophecy of the new covenant which is coming. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Your next birthday, ladies, or guys, next Valentine's, your husband gives you 
a card on your birthday. Your wife gives you a card on Valentine's. It has nothing written in it. Oh, it has the hallmark words, the words that some guy wrote, you know, cranking out cards. Those words are there. But your husband didn't write anything. Your wife didn't write anything. Are you disappointed? Yeah, because it's not about Hallmark's words. It's about her words. It's about his words. You want to hear from them. Well, the law are the words etched in stone. But the law of the Spirit, the law written on hearts, is God's personal words to us. I love you. I sent my son for you. Those, those are personal words that God adds that makes all the difference in the world. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Everything changes at this moment. And the scene is now fixated on a man named James. Now, if you remember from Acts chapter 12, a man named James was beheaded. This is a different James. That James was a son of Zebedee, brother of John. This James is the brother of Jesus. Did you know that? That Jesus' brother was the leader of the church in Jerusalem? Take a look. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders had been done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Here's the word of God. It's from Amos chapter 9. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles, this is the Old Testament, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them that they should abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and by what has been strangled from blood. There is a prophecy that says God's going to restore the tent of David. Do you know what that tent was? Pre-temple, pre-Solomon, pre-curtains, pre-Holy of Holies, and and the different courts, and, and there was just a tent. David had pitched a simple tent before the temple was built. The Ark of the Covenant was in the tent, and that's where David would meet with God. And David, David would be in that place, and, and that to him was the house of God. Psalm 27, 6, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. It was a beautiful place. It was an intimate place. When I got to seminary, I had a real problem. I had never had a roommate in my life. Well, I actually, no, I did in college. I had a roommate in college. But the roommate in college situation was fine. I had a chapel where I could go pray. I could have a private time. But in seminary, I had a roommate, 
and no place to go pray. He was always around. I wanted to pray in the morning, and he was there. I had to go throughout the buildings. I couldn't find any open rooms. I went walking around the campus. I found a tree. I said, I wonder if I could sit at the base of this tree and meet the Lord. So I went to this tree with my Bible, and I kind of hunched down, and I nestled into the tree, and it was amazing. It basically had everything but a cup holder. I mean, the arms of, these, of the trunk came out. I rested. I nestled. I fit. And that's where I met with the Lord for three years. Now, sometimes it would rain and sometimes it would be too cold. But for most of those three years, that's where I met with the Lord. Many years later, I'm a pastor and I need a youth pastor. I needed a staff person of some kind. I went up to the seminary to go interview people. And I wondered, oh, my tree. And I saw the tree and I said, oh, great, I got my Bible. And it was uncomfortable. I didn't fit. Something was gouging in my back. And all of a sudden it occurred to me that when that tree was a seedling, who knows, hundreds of years before, and when I wasn't, wasn't even a, a thought, I wasn't even born yet those hundreds of years ago, God coordinated through rain and sunshine and seasons and years the growth and development of that tree so that when I was born and, and I was 27, 28 years old and I was grown, he coordinated both those things so that when I got to that seminary, I fit in that tree for those three years and no other time. You know why? He wanted me to meet with him. He wanted me to have that place of intimacy with him. And that's what God wants from you. He wants to meet with you. He wants to have that intimacy with you. James, in this story, talk about intimacy. He grew up with Jesus. We know this through church history. Eusebius wrote about this in the fourth century. Other uh, ancient church fathers wrote about this as well, that this was Jesus. This was Jesus' brother. He's mentioned in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, as the next oldest to Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. In John chapter 7, it says that Jesus' brothers didn't even believe in him. In another place in the Gospels, he and his brothers try to do like an intervention. They try to get to Jesus, like he's gone off his rocker. But something happened to James. Five powerful words in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Then he, Jesus, appeared to James. The risen Christ sought out his really stepbrother, sought him out, and showed himself to him and changed his life forever. He became a pillar in the church leader of the Jerusalem church. He wrote a book in the New Testament. That's that James. And in that book, he doesn't say my brother Jesus. He says our glorious Lord Jesus. And he doesn't refer to himself as Jesus' brother. In that book, he refers to himself as his bondservant. He took off his God helmet and had an intimate relationship with the one he grew up with. You might have grown up in church, but never had that intimate relationship with the Lord. It's time for you to have it. You might have never even gone through the doors of a church, but God's been waiting for this moment for you to have that relationship with him as well. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? The Lord is watching. All he's waiting for is your embrace 
I want you to do something. I haven't asked for this and I don't think any of the sermons I've, I've preached here. But you who are ready to embrace Jesus in new intimacy, whether you already know him, you've never known him, or you've grown up in church, but if you want a new level of intimacy with Jesus, I would like you, I don't care who's watching, I don't care who you're with, I would like you, and I would say the Lord would like you, to lift up both your hands as if you were reaching up to heaven for an embrace. Lift up both your hands and just say, repeat these words, Lord, I want a new intimacy with you. I want to have a fresh relationship with you. Say those words. If you've never embraced Christ ever in your life, just tell him that you know he died for you on the cross and that you're sorry for your sins. Invite him into your heart. Give him complete control over your life. Give your life to him. He'll receive you to himself. God bless you. Remember, next week, Pastor Scott Jones will be here. Come and meet him. Take care.